The reading for today's sermon is taken from Joshua chapter 13, beginning at verse 8, and going through to the beginning of chapter 14. With the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond the Jordan eastwards, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. From Aroah, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the table land of Medeba as far as Deban, and all the cities of Sion, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon as far as the boundary of the Ammonites, and Gilead, and the region of the Geshurites, and the Machathites, and Mount Hermon, and all Bashan, and Salika, all the kingdom of Og in Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth and in Edrei, he alone was left of the remnant of the Rephaim, these Moses had struck and driven out. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Machathites, but Geshur and Makath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to them. And Moses gave an inheritance to the tribe of the people of Reuben according to their clans. So their territory was from Aroah, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the table land by Medeba with Heshbon, and all its cities that are in the tableland, Dibon, Bamoth Baal, Beth Baal Meon, and Jahaz, and Kedemoth, and Methbath, and Kiriathayim, and Sibma, and Zereth Shahar on the hill of the valley, and Beth Peor, and the slopes of Pishgar, and Besh, Beth Jeshimoth, that is, all the cities of the tableland, and all the kingdom of Sion, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses defeated with the leaders of Midian, Evi, and Rechem, and Zur, and Hur, and Reba, the princes of Sion, who lived in the land. Balaam, also the son of Beor, the one who practiced divination, was killed with the sword by the people of Israel along with the rest of their slain. And the border of the people of Reuben was the Jordan as a boundary. This was the inheritance of the people of Reuben according to their clans with their cities and villages. Moses also gave an inheritance to the tribe of Gad, to the people of Gad according to their clans. Their territory was Jazer and all the cities of Gilead and half the land of the Ammonites to Aroah, which is east of Rabbah, and from Heshbon, and Ramoth Mitzpeh, and Betonim, and from Mahanaim to the territory of Debir, and in the valley Beth Haram, Beth Nimrah, Sukkoth, and Zaphon, and the rest of the kingdom of Sihon, king of Heshbon, having the Jordan as a boundary to the lower end of the Sea of Chinnereth, eastward beyond the Jordan. This is the inheritance of the people of Gad according to their clans, with their cities and villages. And Moses gave an inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh, it was allotted to the half-tribe of the people of Manasseh according to their clans. Their region extended from Mahanaim through all Bashan, the whole kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, and all the towns of Jair, which are in Bashan, 60 cities, and half Gilead, Ashtaroth, and Edrei, the cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. These were allotted to the people of Machir, the son of Manasseh, for half of the people of Machir according to their clans. These are the inheritances that Moses distributed in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan east of Jericho but to the tribe of Levi. Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he had said to them. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and a half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and a half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and no portion was given to the Levites in the land. 
but only cities to dwell in with their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. The people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. They allotted the land. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious Father, we come to you as always, needy and helpless, but for the work of your Spirit, who has given us new life, drawn us together, united us with Christ, and so joined us to you. So please, merciful Father, open once again your most sacred lips and speak to us. Show us how these ancient and frankly at times puzzling words have such great significance for your people today that you have caused them to be preserved for us for thousands of years. And as you speak to us, please would you show us the glory of Christ and of our inheritance in him. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. And let me just uh, add my welcome to that which you heard earlier, and particularly to the Hannah, the Hannah, the family of little Hannah, Treasure Mills. It is wonderful to have you with us. Uh, I don't know whether you're family or friends. I've not even had a chance to meet you yet, but it's wonderful to have you here, and we hope you enjoy your time worshipping with us. Today, as every Lord's Day, Hannah Mills for the first time, we all, not for the first time, will enjoy an extraordinary privilege, an astonishing thing, really. We will come to the Lord's table and we will feed on Jesus. We will eat Jesus Christ. As we eat and drink that bread and that wine, the Lord Jesus Christ will give us his body and his blood to eat and drink. This ought to be uncontroversial, really. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. John 6. Well, it's a good job that that's what um, the Lord Jesus said, because it turns out that eating and drinking of Jesus are essential. John 6, 53. Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. No life at all. Unless we do this. We eat Jesus, and that is the privilege to which, Mr. Mills, you'll be bringing your daughter today for the first time, the first of many times we trust. However, sadly, though this ought to be fairly uncontroversial, it has proved controversial over the years, and actually, I think, probably, is fair to say, a fair source of confusion. And there are a couple of reasons for this. I think the first reason why this confuses us is that we lack the what I can only call the philosophical categories to put it in. We have no metaphysics or uh, underlying theory of being that explains how by eating bread we can eat Jesus who is enthroned in heaven. We, we don't know how to understand the reality of the world we're in in such a way that we can make sense of that. So we get confused. But there's another reason why this causes problems. This is more a historical reason, and this is the big one, really, I think, in many people's minds. To many Protestants, the so-called real presence of Christ at the Lord's table just sounds a little bit Catholic. Shall we be honest about it? It just doesn't sound like the sort of thing that we ought to be talking about around here. And the typical response, and you get this actually almost explicitly in some contexts, well, if 
Catholics believe in the real presence and we believe in the real absence. Like the one place you're not going to encounter Jesus is over there. Um, and therefore it comes as a bit of a surprise to many people who, um, well, uh, who believe that by distancing themselves from Rome at that point they have saved the Reformation, to hear one of the leading reformers, John Calvin himself, say, and this is a quote from Calvin's Institutes, none but the utterly irreligious deny that Christ is the bread of life by which believers are nourished into eternal life. We are quickened, he says. That means we are given new spiritual life by, quote, true partaking of him. Calvin, who's hardly like kind of compromising with Rome in the middle of the 16th century, is telling us very clearly that the way that we receive life is by participating or partaking of Jesus. And I'm afraid what's happened, many of us, many Protestants, perhaps ourselves included, have become so preoccupied with defending against Roman Catholic misunderstandings of the sacraments that we've actually started to deny things that the Bible says about them. We've actually been aiming our cannons in the wrong direction. We maybe even criticized, without even realizing it, things that Paul the Apostle or even our Lord Jesus said. So, we have some questions, don't we? I mean, obviously, there's one kind of side question. So, um, if the Roman Catholic doctrine of the sacraments is wrong, and it is wrong, well, what exactly is wrong with it? I mean, we might want to try and pick that up, and, and if we have time, I'll, I'll try and say a word or two about that. But I think there's a much bigger question. If it's the case that by eating and drinking the bread and the wine, we're feeding upon Christ, if there's no other way to get life than by doing so, if this is not something we can sort of relegate to advanced theology classes that really, Pastor Neil and I, I think we can probably spare the congregation this, we can just talk about basic things and leave the Lord's Supper out, if that's not an option to us, then how exactly is it that we do this? What does Scripture teach about how God in Christ is present so that we feed on him as we eat the bread and drink the wine? Is there anything else in the Bible about this? Well, it turns out that there is. In fact, right here in Joshua 13 and 14, there is a great deal more, or rather there are a couple of little glimpses of the great deal more that Scripture has to say about this subject. So what I want to do today, instead of going through the whole of this text and looking in detail at every, every verse, you notice that it's um, a fairly detailed description of two and a half of the tribe's inheritances on the east side of the Jordan and then a little bit on the, the west side of the Jordan. Instead of going through that in detail, what I want to do is, what we might do a, a few times in the next few weeks as we're going through these lists between Joshua 13 and Joshua 21, just to pull out a few details... And by focusing on those details, it's not that the other parts of the text have nothing to say. I mean, we, we can't look at everything. And um, what we'll start to see is how so often just one or two phrases unlock a vast and glorious cavern of scriptural truth that we can then wander around in and we may discover all kinds of new things. So first I want to just look briefly at this part of um, the text we read. Then we'll cast the net wider and see if we can fit that in with a broader picture of what, in particular, the tribe of Levi had to do. We'll come to that in a second. And then we'll, we'll come back to our original question and see if by the end we can, well, see if we can, if not answer, at least shed some more light on the questions we started with. So first, let's have a look at this text. What do these chapters teach us about the Levites? Well, you recall that the whole of chapter 13 through 21 is a whole series of lists 
mostly of tribal inheritances in the land of Canaan. So the people of Israel have basically conquered as much of the land as they're going to get. There's still a lot of work to do, but, but they've kind of finished. And chapter 11, verse 23, and chapter 12 are kind of triumphant, even though they indicate there's still work to do. And so, well, where are they going to live? Where are all the different tribes going to be? And these chapters describe, well, we saw, didn't we, um, uh, the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh that was over in the east. This is where they're going to live. But there's one group of people who are missed out. In all these lists, there's one tribe who are only mentioned in order to explain what they don't get in the land. And, of course, you saw it's the tribe of Levi. Look at verse 14. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. So that's a bit strange. And then you get it again at the end of the chapter. Uh, chapter 13, verse 33. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. Poor old Levi. And then you've got the same thing in the beginning of chapter 14. When you come to the west of the Jordan, they don't get anything there either. Look, chapter 14, verse 4. The people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in. They've got cities with a little tiny, tiny bit of land around them, but basically they've got nowhere to grow their crops and really nowhere to settle, nowhere to live. And you get the same thing later in chapter 18. The only mention of Levi in this whole, whole sec- uh, major long section of the book of Joshua is to tell the world they don't get anywhere to live apart from these little cities. They get no land, no inheritance. So why not? Well, the text explains it, doesn't it? Just look back with me at those the two verses in chapter 13 that I mentioned. If you've got your Bibles, again, look at verse 14. And you notice there are two different explanations given here, and we've got to figure these out. Chapter, chapter 13, verse 14. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. So what do they get instead? Oh, the offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to him. Same thing at the end of the chapter, except it's not the same thing at the end of the chapter. Chapter, uh, verse 14, it says, you don't get an inheritance because you get the offerings that the other people of the other 11 tribes, which actually become 12 tribes, which I'll tell you about in a second, you get the offerings that everybody else brings. And then at the end of the chapter, to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. Same phrasing, but why not? The answer is different. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. Now, this causes all kinds of confusion, because people are like, okay, which is it? Come on. Do you get no inheritance because you get the offerings, or do you get no inheritance because the Lord is your inheritance? And what's the answer? Obviously, yes. These are not two different explanations. These are two different ways of viewing the same explanation. You receive the offerings, Levi, you receive the sacrifices which are brought by the people to the Lord. Some of the offerings will be burned to the Lord, and in, in one case, the whole thing is burnt and given to the Lord. But most of most of the offerings are not burned. A little portion of them is burned. A little handful of the grain offering, little bits of the sin offering and guilt offering, they're burned and given to the Lord, who dwells in the fire and in the smoke above the altar. But you get the rest of it. You get your inheritance by getting the offerings which is the same thing. And this is the crucial insight that this chapter brings to our question that we began with. It's the same thing to receive the offerings as it is to receive the Lord himself. By receiving the sacrifices, you receive the living God. There are several other texts of 
the scriptures which point in the same direction. This isn't unique to Joshua 13. It's most prominent in Joshua 13 because it puts both of the explanations together. But in Numbers 18, 20 to 24, it says the priests don't have any inheritance because they get the tithes. Now that's interesting. We'll come to that in a, sec- in a few minutes. De- uh, Deuteronomy 10, uh, Deuteronomy 18, Ezekiel 44. In other words, it's even in the renewed temple that Ezekiel sees in his vision. Um, Joshua 18 verse 7, you've got the same thing there. It says that they don't get any inheritance because the priesthood is their inheritance. So you see what you get. As you put this whole thing together, um, this picture of what the tribe of Levi receives, they don't get an inheritance of land in the land of Canaan because instead they get the priesthood, which is the same as getting the sacrifices, which is the same as receiving the Lord himself. Now if you just start to chew on that for like five, ten seconds, maybe you can sort of see where we might be heading in our attempt to understand how it is we feed on Christ at the Lord's table. Yes? If you just let, let the biblical theology cogs turn for a few revolutions, and you're like, oh, I see. But we've still got some work to do before we get there. And I want to take this opportunity, really, second thing I want to talk about is to, just to give you a sketch of the background of the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi have a really fascinating kind of historical background And if we can understand this, then we'll be able to start start to put more of the pieces together and we'll be less likely to kind of make a misstep here or there and and misunderstand something. So let's just think for a few minutes about the history of the tribe of Levi within the people of God. You're familiar, I know, with the, the basic makeup of the people of God. It's Abraham, to whom the promises were first given, Isaac, Jacob, and his 12 sons. And those 12 sons, roughly, not exactly, came to make up the 12 tribes of Israel. They're not exactly we're coming to, don't worry. There's lots of things I'm kind of kicking the can down the road in this sermon. I'm going to have a lot of cans to pick up by the end of it, I know. But that's, that's one more thing we need to explain. Um, those 12 sons roughly became the heads of the 12 tribes. Reuben, Simeon, Levi was the third son. And they first shoot to prominence in Genesis 34. Uh, which is a terrible, terrible chapter. I mean, not it's part of the word of God. It's not terrible in that respect. It's terrible in the events it describes. It describes the rape of Dinah, the sister of the, um, the sons of Jacob. They weren't all boys. There was Dinah as well. And she was raped by a man called Shechem, the son of Hamor, who came from a city called Shechem. And basically, it's a long, tangled story, but what happens in... Um, Uh, Genesis 34, is that Levi and Simeon, her brothers, plot some kind of clever scheme involving circumcision. Let's not go there. Um, Which basically means that they put to death all the men of that city in vengeance for their sisters being so vilely mistreated by Shechem. And as a consequence of that, when you get to Genesis uh, 49... Genesis 49 is right at the end of the book of Genesis, and there Jacob pronounces uh, blessings on each of his 12 sons, except he doesn't pronounce blessings on each of his 12 sons. He looks back at the violence of Simeon and Levi, and he says, cursed be their anger. Astonishing thing to say. In a chapter full of blessings, he's cursing sons number two and three. This isn't going so well, Jacob. Cursed be their anger. Why? Well, because in their anger they killed men. It's apparently a reference to what Jacob regards as their unwarranted, violent revenge back in chapter 34. And he says, 
speaking in the, the name of the Lord, Jacob, his, their father, says, I will divide them in, J- in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Simeon are doomed or cursed from this point on to be scattered within the people of Israel. Now, that's a puzzle. How's that going to happen? Well, you keep reading through the Bible. You get to the next time that the people of um, Levi come to prominence, and here the story is, well, it's still a fairly miserable story, but at least Levi emerges in a more positive light. In Exodus 32, after the incident of the golden calf, Moses says, who is at the Lord's side? Meaning, roughly, okay, who among all the tribes of Israel recognizes that this idolatry of making the golden calf is a, is a despicable and evil thing? Who actually trusts in the Lord, and which is the tribe that comes to him? It's the tribe of Levi. And so the Levites, at that point, act as God's... It's violence again, interesting. <laughs> but this time, it's violence apparently in a good, though dreadful, purpose of acting as God's agents of judgment against 3,000 of the Israelite men who had been committing idolatry and various other things with this golden calf. So they're, they're, okay, they're, they're men who like swords, obviously. <laughs> um, but this time, their violence serves the honor of God. And it's as though the previous curse that was pronounced on them by Jacob has now been turned into a blessing because at this point, well, the Levites from this point onwards, and this especially becomes clear in the next book, the book of Numbers, no, next book one, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Numbers chapter one, the Levites are separated out from the other 12 tribes. You've got 11 tribes, and all the men are going to be numbered for war in uh, the land of Canaan. Who's, who, how many have we got in each tribe, and who's going to be able to fight, and so on? And the Lord says, okay, but don't count Levi. Levi's going to do something different. I've got something special in store for him. It must have been a disappointment because you think, who do you want fighting for you in the land of Canaan? You want the men who love the swords, right? Well, no. The Lord's got a more important job for them to do. Their job is going to be to minister at the tabernacle. From this point on, they're not going to be really part of the other 11 tribes. And in fact, to make up the difference, what happens is that the tribe of Joseph is split into two. So you get Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, they become the heads of the next two tribes, which also fits with Genesis 48, where Jacob promises blessings on them. So you lose Levi, he's like a second group, well, he's not in the main group of the tribes. And then to make up the numbers, you split Joseph down the middle. So he kind of gets double blessing, which also makes sense, because at the end of the book of Genesis, he's the guy who basically saves the day. So, by the way, this this also solves another puzzle. The fact that the Levites have this special job ministering in the, in the tabernacle, ministering to the Lord, solves another puzzle. Because you remember back in, um, in Exodus 12, how'd they get out of Egypt finally? The 10th great plague. It was the plague on the firstborn. All the firstborn of every womb died. Every household that was not, where the doorposts were not marked with the blood of a lamb. And then in the next chapter, the Lord says, okay, this is, this is how it's actually going to be from this point onwards. The firstborn of every womb belongs to the Lord and must be sacrificed to him. Well, that's a bit of a problem, because what about people? Do you want to go sacrificing people? Not really. So what does the Lord say? Well, people don't need to be sacrificed. They can be redeemed. How are they going to be redeemed? I'll take, instead of taking the firstborn of every womb, of every woman among the Israelites, I'll take the whole tribe of Levi. And instead of putting them to death, I'll put them in my service, and how they get that privilege, Numbers chapter 1 at the the tabernacle. Can can you start to see how all this fits together? So Levi is kind of separated out for this special vocation of worship and actually teaching and sacrifice and 
receiving the offerings and so on. So there they are. They're in the land of Canaan. So now we get back to Joshua 13. Okay. Well, now what's going to happen? What's the first problem they're going to experience? Well, they haven't got any land to live in. So how are they going to eat? And now you see the genius of this solution. Because what happens is the, the demands of worship, which needs to be staffed full time, and the practical demands of these people eating are solved in the same way. The people of Israel bring their tithes, Numbers 18, and they give them to the Levites. And incidentally, the Levites also then tithe to the priests, which is like a subset of the Levites. So one way in which the people of Levi are provided for is through the tithes of everybody else. They get to eat because, well, they're roughly a tenth of the people, so they get roughly a tenth of everybody else's income, and so they've got about the same, so they can survive. And they also get the sacrifices. Most of the food which is brought to the temple to be offered in sacrifice, whether grain or lambs or bulls or whatever it is, is uh, given to the people who work there. It's not burned, it's not given to the Lord, it's for them. And it's interesting, I love this moment, in Deuteronomy 18, it tells you which parts of the animals you get, and I was trying to work out. It turns out that um, the, what it says is that um, you've got to give the priests the shoulder of an ox or a sheep, and literally, the Hebrew phrase says, the two cheeks of the stomach. So all the meat on both sides of the animal. It's really cool, because that's like ribs, brisket, everything. So the priests get... the. I think, it's, the brisket, the problem is that's a bit too far forward on the animal, so I can't quite persuade myself that the priests under the old covenant get all the brisket. They do under the new covenant, obviously. <laughs> it's a really important biblical principle or something. Anyway, so, so you can see what happens. So basically, through the faithful tithing and worship of the community of the people of God, the Levites, who are set apart from the people of God, have two things they can do. Firstly, they can eat, and secondly, they're able to worship God. And so as the representatives of the people of Israel, the people of Israel are able to worship God. That's how the whole Levite system basically works. It's one of these wonderful uh, scriptural sub-narratives. It's like this tangled story that goes through several hundred years and about four or five different books of the Bible, and it all kind of hangs together. It's like it's, though it's been written by God or something. You wouldn't... Well, you'd believe it anyway. Now, just as an aside, before we go on and start thinking back to our original question, this actually highlights a related practical issue and shows some sense of why it's such an important issue both for the people of Israel and for us today. It's the issue of tithing. You know that um, Scripture says that all of us are called to bring the first tenth of our uh, increase is the biblical term. So it's not, if you're in a business, it's not turnover, it's profit. If you're working um, uh, for, as a wage earner, it's, it's your salary. Um, we're called to bring the first tenth of what the Lord gives us to the Lord, to his service, to provide for worship and all the other things that the, the people of God are called to do, which would include generosity to the poor and so on and so forth. Right. So, over the years, in various contexts, this has been more or less neglected. Uh, I don't know um, any of the details of the tithing records at All Saints. Like, that's a deliberate decision. I don't, want to, I don't want my relationship with all of you to be uh, kind of permanently influenced by my understanding of what you earn or what you give. Um, but 
my impression is, and this is just from what those who are in touch with the finances say, that mostly it's great. Mostly you guys here have got the biblical message that we're called to tithe faithfully. Um, it's always possible, of course, that the message hasn't quite percolated through. It, it's always the way, isn't it? Like the, the last part of our hearts to which the Spirit of God penetrates is the part connected to our wallets. Um, uh, but it's intriguing to think, why would this be so significant? Well, under the Old Covenant, the worship of the people of Israel would stop immediately the tithing stopped. Because th there's no welfare state to provide for underpaid Levites. And they're they're going to, well, not quite as soon, as soon as the food in their storehouses run out. If the people of God stop tithing to the Levites, the Levites are going to have to go back to their farms. In fact, if you look at... Um, Nehemiah 13, where Nehemiah is trying to clear up the mess after the rebuildings of the wall, rebuilding the walls in, the, in Jerusalem after the return from exile, he says this is what's happened. He's like, there's all these things wrong with the people of God. And one of the problems is the Levites have all gone back to their farms because people have stopped tithing. The worship of God would depend in practical terms on the people of God tithing. Um, so I, I don't know, like I said, um, I don't know whether any of us need a reminder, um, but let me tell you, dividing by 10 is really easy. What you do <laughs> so you, get, you get the number, you write it down, and you strike a zero off the end. That's really, really easy to do. Um, I'm told that um, it's possible to do, well, personally, I do that, and then divide it by 12 again, do it month at a time, very easy, very straightforward. You can do it by auto pay, so you only need to make the decision once. And then it's, we're not going to be putting ourselves in the position of the people of Israel who Nehemiah rebuked when he observed that the worship had stopped because the tithing had stopped. Okay, so um, that aside, let's come back now to our original question. The original question, the main question concerned this puzzle. I began by saying we have this extraordinary privilege of feeding upon Jesus Christ. Little Hannah welcomed to feed upon Jesus at the Lord's table for the first of many, we pray, times throughout her life. How is this possible? And I think if we just reflect for a few minutes, and we're, and we're just going to spend a few minutes on this, what we've picked up so far in the book of Joshua may help us. Now, the first thing to say, just as we try and bring this up to date, is that that old covenant privilege which belonged exclusively to the Levites does not belong exclusively to the Levites now. Sometimes people will ask, what's the difference between the Old and the New Testament? And they're thinking about something to do with the relevance of the Old Testament law, or they might be thinking about something to do with um, the way in which the Spirit is given, or, or um, uh, to whom the Spirit is given. And there are some good questions there. Let me tell you, one of the most significant things about the, old covenant, about the New Covenant compared to the Old Covenant is that we all get to eat the sacrifices. It's most prominent, uh, it seems to me obvious, in the book of Hebrews, where twice at least um, the author says, um, let us all draw near, Hebrews 4.16, let us all with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Now that phrase, draw near, th that reflects the description of what the Levites and the priests alone did under the Old Covenant. They were paid by everybody else to stop everybody else from drawing near. Think of them as kind of tabernacle bouncers. It's their job to keep you out. 
You don't want to go wandering into the Holy of Holies. I wonder what this is. No bad idea to approach the Holy God unless you're the person called to do so. And naturally, it's interesting, in um, Hebrews 10, you've got a similar phrase. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That phrase, washed with pure water, echoes the, the description of the ordination of the Levites in Leviticus 8. Ordination of the priests, pardon me. So, in the book of Hebrews, it's absolutely abundantly clear. It's not just that Christ has come and now what he has brought surpasses everything under the older covenant. It surpasses it for everybody. Imagine back in the day, you know, you, you watch the high priest once a year going in to the most holy place to perform worship on behalf of two million people there. You watch him sort of go in, he, half an hour later he comes out and think, my goodness, what a privilege. What an honour to be that man who's welcomed into the throne room of the living God. And maybe you would smell the gorgeous smell of kind of grilled beef ribs and smoked brisket as it wafted over the doors, over the walls of the tabernacle court. And you could listen to the Levites eating with the Lord. I don't know whether they're allowed kind of Texan barbecue sauce, maybe. That, that privilege of intimacy with God is a privilege to which we're all now welcome. It's, it's actually anticipated all over the New Testament. In one sense, the whole of the New Testament is the account of how the privileges that once were confined to the people of Israel have been amplified and spread abroad to everybody. So now we've entered heaven itself with Christ by faith to sit before the living God and eat with him. And so that's reflected in the Lord's Supper. It's, it's, it's one of the just basic reasons why we welcome everybody who's been baptized and believes in Jesus to come. We welcome children to come because Jesus welcomed the children to come to him. It actually fits... Those of you who've been coming to our um, Wednesday night Bible studies, remember we've been thinking about Christian eschatology, and one of the things I said um, way back at the beginning, and I've repeated it a few times since, is that the goal of human history is ever-increasing closeness with God, communion with God. And that communion is, shall we say, consummated on the last day. when We shall see his face, Revelation 21 and 22. But it's anticipated here. What we've got at this meal is like a bit of the future brought into the present. Because we're eating a meal with him, an anticipation of the glory that awaits us. So that's one strand to bear in mind. This is not something which is confined to a few. There are some aspects of the Levites' ministry that are fulfilled only in those who ordained. Uh, Paul indicates some of this in 1 Corinthians 9, to do with things like paying ministers, and, and the distinctive roles of ministers are shaped by the vocation of Levites. But the privilege of eating and drinking is not just for Pastor Neil and me. But it also seems to me that maybe the experience of the Levites could help us understand how exactly we feed 
on Christ at the Lord's table. See, whatever's, let's go back to Roman Catholic teaching for a second. Whatever's wrong with it, the problem with Roman Catholic teaching is not that they're wrongly saying that Christ is present there. I mean, like the priests, by eating like a little slice of grilled beef, with, with their friends, their fellow Levites, with their families, they're communing with the living God. That's how they receive the Lord as their inheritance. So we can't say that the Lord is absent. For what it's worth, and this is, just, this is just a headline for a much longer discussion, which we won't go into. The problem with Roman Catholic teaching on the Lord's Supper is mainly that they think the way in which God is present is by the bread and wine changing in some way. And the in some way is, is, the, is the problem. And the change is some... There's no, there's no change in, in the bread and wine. It's just bread and wine. You can tell it's just bread and wine because it's just what it tastes like. And so the best way... And I've been t- trying to think how best to try to understand this. This is not an issue of the, I understand this and I can't communicate it. This is an issue of my understanding of this is partial. But in the just a couple of minutes that remain, I want to give you my best shot so far at trying to explain how it is that God is present here when we eat. What happens at a meal? Well, you don't just eat. Well, you shouldn't just eat. At any meal that is done properly, any meal that you want to remember is a relational event. Eating alone is sometimes a necessity, sometimes a necessity a lot of the time. But it's, it's a qualitatively different experience, isn't it, from eating with somebody else. And it's interesting, uh, this is reflected in Scripture, meals are intensely relational events. Um, think of um, the, the first meal in the Bible. What did they eat? Well, they ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Note carefully what they ate. They ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so what did God say has happened to them at the end of Genesis 3? They've become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Something real has happened in Adam and Eve, knowing good and evil, which is directly connected to what it was they ate. They ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, not from the tree of life. So what they received was knowledge of good and evil, not life, which is why they died. Or think of Luke 15. Like, the Pharisees, the uh, leaders of the Jews, like, this man welcomes sinners. No, 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 no. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Like, horror. <laughs> yeah. Because there's something, like, he's, he's actually eating with them? Yeah, he is. Because there is an intensity of relational closeness with whoever you're eating with. All kinds of practical implications to this. Gentlemen, if you're away on a business trip, okay, this place, and, or even at home, just on business, and you, um, you have to meet with a, a client or something, and, or you, in my case, I'd meet with a, uh, a congregant or somebody who's not a Christian, who's interested in the Christian faith. Imagine if it, I'm a man, right, and it, I, I'm meeting with a young lady. Well, okay, there's some issues there. Um, got to meet in public. But it wouldn't be altogether impossible. You know, you go and meet in a cafe somewhere or whatever, have a cup of coffee. But what I would never say... Well, let's go for lunch. Let's go somewhere nice. Like with somebody who's not my wife, why not? Well, because it's 
just inappropriate. There's a kind of relational closeness. Well, truth be told, yeah, there have been one or two times when I've done that. And it's... There is, I don't know, it, it, it f- is it altogether bad? Like you sit down and have a sandwich with somebody? It raises that question in my mind. It just, because there's something about a meal, isn't there? You notice that even, even if the person you're eating with is a demon, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul the Apostle says, that if you eat in an idol's temple, you're participating with demons. What? That there's something about the meal that you're having which brings you closer to somebody. And it's closer to the person you're having the meal with. But it doesn't need to be like that. You see... Think of a meal that brings you closer to somebody you want to be close with. At some point in the next year or two, Cody, you're going to do what most of the dads here have done at some point. You'll come home from work or whatever, and your daughter will have made for you the first batch of cookies she's ever baked. And you'll walk in and the house will have this sort of smell of peanut butter and chocolate chip chunks. And you'll walk in, and you'll think, okay, well, I know why this smells so good. This is because Erica I kind of made them, basically. Um, but little Hannah will be so excited by what she's about to give you. And you'll, I know, you'll, I know what you'll do, because you'll do what we all did, and you'll, you'll take one, and it'll be just small enough that you can just get away with having two. Um, and you'll, you'll eat it, and she'll be like, a smile two feet wide across her face and she'll be jumping up and down and it's really exciting because you've done something by eating what she's made you've done something to register the closeness of your relationship with her and that's the closest I can get I I don't think that's just an illustration it is an illustration but I don't think it's just an illustration I think frankly that I at least, maybe we lack the philosophical sophistication to articulate that in abstract terms. What is it that eating with somebody at a meal does that brings you closer together? That makes it, while verging on, just be careful if it's somebody, you know, where it's your relationship ought to have a certain distance involved. It's profoundly true. When you are welcome to somebody else's table, you are being drawn closer to them. And that is closest I can come to understanding this. It certainly seems to be what we learn from the men of Levi in Joshua 13. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, there are too many things that we fail to understand. And yet, Father, you have been kind in granting us the blessings, even of those things which are beyond us. And so continue to do this, we pray, increasing not simply our understanding, but our closeness with you as we eat 
and drink at the table to which you've invited us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.